filmmaking as a direct, it's a form of confession. 10 different people would make 10 different right. films with the same subject matter. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a, an expression of what you're trying to say based upon who you are, where you come from, and uh, your politics and, and your uh, aesthetics. And um, it's your song. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode features the recent event Spotlight on Director Julie Dash, which was co-hosted by the DGA's Focus on Women Committee and Eastern Diversity Steering Committee. Ms. Dash's directorial credits include the feature films Daughters of the Dust, Praise House, and Funny Valentines, and episodes of the series Women, Stories of Passion, and Queen Sugar. She was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Movies for Television for her 2002 film, The Rosa Parks Story. Please enjoy Ms. Dash's conversation with fellow director Melina Mitsukis in front of a virtual audience, wherein they discuss her process when making Daughters of the Dust, her early work, and pushing the boundaries of stereotypical images within cinema. Thank you. You are incredible. So I'm just so honored to be here with you. And I feel so special because honestly, it's the first time we get to sit down and talk and I just need to know everything. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. (laughs) We get to sit here on this stage, also known as my couch, and discuss Black womanhood and feminism. Uh, So let's start from the beginning. Where did this passion for film come from? What influenced you? Who influenced you? Uh, You grew up in a time in New York where the city was on fire, where Black activists were leading the charge. And how did you find your, your voice and find film? Well, I was lucky enough to stumble into the Studio Museum of Harlem mm-hmm. um, several years after the riots, you know, in Harlem. So uh, the Studio Museum of Harlem had this great cinematography workshop. Mm-hmm. And so my friend and I, uh, we stumbled in there, you know, popping our gum, chewing gum, do rags <laughs> on our heads and said, what's going on here? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And we were there for two weeks before we realized that it wasn't a still photography workshop, that it was cinematography, that it was motion mm-hmm. pictures. So <laughs> we stayed because we were, we had some place to go after school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we stayed and the most, I guess the, the most amazing thing about being there was it was the first time I was able to view foreign films mm-hmm. at length. And of course, you know, being a rowdy high school students, we were like, what's this? Why do we have to read these subtitles? These films are in <laughs> black and white. What's going on here? <laughs> you know? But what it did was it, 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 we were really like, Toss head first into this immersion into this uh, the, the film world, and uh, and we learned the power of film and the transformative powers of film and uh, of the music, the politics, and all of this with the French films, the the Russian films, the the films of Sajid Ray, the films of Ozu and Mitsuguchi. Uh, I'd never even heard these names before. And then all of a sudden I was recognizing the characters in their films and it was just like, wait a minute, this is, this is very powerful. It's, it's more than a hobby. Uh, It is, it is a profound um, entrance into a portal, visual portal uh, where you learn things, you experience things, you meet people you've never even thought of before, and you come out the other side of this portal, meaning the end of the film, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
and you come out a different person and hopefully a better person. Hopefully. And, and I wanted to do that too. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I went to college, I majored in film mm-hmm. as an undergraduate student. And, um, and I wanted to learn more and more and more. And I was reading about uh, these young black filmmakers in Los Angeles, Charles Burnett, Larry Clark, Ben Caldwell at UCLA. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, that was my goal to get to UCLA. I got to UCLA, but in a roundabout way, because I, I went to AFI first, American Film Institute first, and then I, then I went to UCLA. Wow. I, saw, I read that in school, I believe you spoke about wanting to create a Black feminist space in cinema that mirrored like what Toni Morrison and Tony Cade and Audre Lorde and, and Alice Walker Absolutely. were doing in literature. Mm-hmm. Um, to make work that wouldn't rely on a white gaze or solicit a, the, or rely on a white audience. Uh, can you talk about that necessity? Sure. Uh, well, when I was in undergraduate school, I'm reading Toni Morrison, Tony Kate Barbara's Gorilla, My Love, Alice Walker, mm-hmm. uh, Corrigadora by Gail Jones. And all of these, and I, it was like, I, these, I was touched and moved and, and inspired by these stories and I wanted to see them on the screen. Mm-hmm. I wanted to live with them on the screen and not just, you know, in the books. And so it's like, okay, maybe I could do that too. How do we go about doing that? How do we go about making that happen? And it was while I was at AFI that I decided that I was going to my mission statement in life, because, you know, we all had to come up with a mission statement. <laughs> I was going to do films uh, that redefined uh, the African-American and um, dias- African diasporic women on the screen. I was going to redefine how we saw them in dramatic narratives. Well, you did that. And, <laughs> and so that's been my goal. And uh, that's the direction I, I've been in for, for some time. And, you know, mm-hmm. we have to shape it, you know, like when we're working on commercials and stuff, a car commercial is like, right. well, it doesn't really, <laughs> but, you know, that's Black women drive cool. cars too. Yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, let her dance around the car. No. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Um, what I love about your films, the shorts, the art pieces, and it's not about it's not just about the radical politics or what's deemed as radical to a right white racist institution, but also like the boldness of the beauty and the art and the aesthetic as a form of as, of, of, uh, as a form of resistance. Uh, I try to adopt that in my work. You absolutely do. You absolutely, and you've done that so many times and, you know, broadly in in Queen and Slim. I mean, that's what I was, I was so taken by the, the, the the visual tableaus that you created. Well, that's powerful and, uh, and disruptive and, and at the same time that multi-layered and it's like, wow. You go, girl. Carve that path. You go. So I'm like, you carve that path for me. So, uh, by allowing the resistance just to exist in the imagery. Um, can you speak about film as a rebellion, film as protest, and how oh. you're able to do that? Well, um, every film that's made <laughs> that's completed is a, is a minor miracle. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the way I see it, all film, whether it's animation, whether it's wh- whatever it is, whether it's a comic, comedy or horror movie it's it's really a political statement because you're we're working with visual metaphors right and and politics is all lives are infused with politics 
uh, with everything we do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like one of the things we, we talked about, you know, in film school was, you know, the, the recurrence of zombie movies and, mm-hmm. and all, what, what does that mean? And it's just like, well, back during World War II, they, uh, Hollywood was, was putting out all these musicals to, you know, inspire people and distract them from the war. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, doing economic downturns, it's zombie mu- movies, mm-hmm. horror movies, like people coming to suck your blood or kill you or eat your brain. Um, and really, are we talking about the masses? Right. <laughs> the poor people right. like it, encroaching upon right. those, the haves and the have-nots, you know, constantly. Right. That's so telling like of what's successful now, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because like really right now, uh, I mean, every other movie is a... Uh, um, either a zombie movie or some kind of yeah, horror. The horde is coming to take yours. Yeah. <laughs> take what you, you've worked so hard for. Yeah. You know? So, yes, everything is... Uh, films are very political. Um, they're very powerful. Uh, and, and even what Stalin said, it was the most powerful mechanism of the 20th century. So, I mean, it was recognized early on that you can... You, you, there's no need for war or battle. You could make a film that could just change society, this boom, just like right. that. Yeah, like the propaganda films, which takes us to Illusions, which <laughs> <laughs> was your thesis film, is that right? Yeah, it was my thesis at UCLA, wow. Illusions, yes. That's incredible. It still stands the test of time. I'm hiding my thesis films. Uh, <laughs> I, I tried to hide it. I tried to hide it, but it, no, it, it does it not exist. Everyone needs yeah. to see it. Um, and for those who haven't, it's a short film set in 1942 in a Hollywood studio and it explores racial and sexual discrimination through the story of a Black woman, Mignon Dupree, an executive who gains power in the studio system by passing for white. But what I love about the film is how you're able to subvert all these Hollywood cliches. Like she's never this tragic mulatto, mulatto. <laughs> um, you know, that we've, we've seen so often. She's proud of who she is, but she's strategic, right? Um, she's an illusion in every way. How did, how did you come to the concept for that film? Well, it, it, came, it came slowly. You know, I made it while I was a student at UCLA, but I actually conceived the notion of doing it while I was a student at the American Film Institute. It was one of my writing exercises. Um, And of course they like, like, get out of here with that. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Who wants to see that? You know, it's like, hmm. And so it's like, I'm seeing, you know, all these connections to like, I know then like a spy in the house of love. It's like, hmm, why do, why do uh, uh, people, biracial people always have to be ashamed of themselves? Mm-hmm. That's like a white supremacy yeah. outlook gaze on, on, on people who of mixed race people. And it was like, what if, you know, mm-hmm. how do we get her in here? Because at the time, you know, the, the film is set um, during World War II in the 1940s. And, you know, I, do, I always do a lot of research on the time period. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even have African-Americans working in janitorial services uh, within the studios at that time. So the only way that uh, a person of color could get in, a Black person, was either they were a tap dancer, a singer, what uh, what have you, and then they would shoot them separate from everyone else. And so I wanted someone on a higher level to... um, to work uh, with, uh, you know, overseeing this production that right. this, um, that I created. So I had her, you know, be a woman, a black woman who's passing for white. 
uh, who would, or for two reasons, she would never rise above her, her, her station in life is one, because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of white women who were really running things, but they were, right. you know, the junior Cub Scout below the white <laughs> male executive. And so that's where she would be. That's where she's positioned to, mm-hmm. to you know, to do her magic. And, uh, and of course, she meets with the young Black singer, Esther Jeter, who uh, recognizes her right away and looks at her and says, like, oh, wow. Nice to have you inside. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way we are. When we we see a a person of of color, uh, no matter how light they are, whatever, we recognize them. We recognize each other. But that's what I was really taking because I honestly didn't expect, I didn't know where it was leading. And for her to be so proud in that moment and not be scared of, of who knew or who found out. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really powerful, especially since that was like your thesis film. <laughs> yeah, well, at the time I was reading a, a, a book called, we were studying film as subversive art. And so it's like you take everything, you know, in the postmodernist world and you, you right. flip it over. And why does it always have to be one way? You know, they teach us that, you know, that there are 36 plot points. It's like, hmm. Right. <laughs> you know, everything is so fixed. Right. In that world, it's like, uh, okay. Yeah. And you really made a career out of being experimental and just, you know, navigating through different genres. I really Mm -hmm. admire that and follow that Mm -hmm. in my own career. Um, There's a line in Illusions that's so powerful. We kind of talked about it already, but um, where she says the real history that most people will remember and believe in is what they see on the silver screen, which Mm -hmm. speaks to the power of cinema and the writing and rewriting of our history. can Which you talk about that? <laughs> exactly. Can you talk about the power of the image and how you used it to rewrite our history? Um, well, that's my job. Yeah. I, I feel as a uh, a black woman filmmaker, mother, uh, <laughs> grandmother, that uh, I need to. I that's my passion. I love telling stories. I love uh, controlling worlds within the frame. Um, I love telling stories that people don't really know what the outcome is going to be because, you know, I'm working to, I have a different rhythm, a different beat, uh, a different purpose in life. Um, and it's just, it's just a lot of fun for me to create multi layers of information and visuals and visual metaphors and play with, um, to playing with visual rhetoric, Mm. You know, um, and subverting what we think we know or what right. we ought to know. Mm. I want to create something original, even if it's difficult mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it's not think, I know that it's time. I mean, that's why we have all these young people out on the street right now. Exactly. Because we're saying, <laughs> so it's Black Lives Matter. And Black lives in cinema matter, and our voice matters, and our stories matter, and our stories, hello, may be very different from what you're used to hearing or understanding or parsing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, and then Illusions led to, to my favorite film of yours, uh, your first feature, Daughters of the Dust. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully everyone here has experienced this film, but... If not, it's inspired by your father's Gullah background. Um, yeah, yeah, kind of like 
things I heard around the house. Yes. Okay. It's said in 1902 and revolves around three generations of Gullah women in the Pazant family on St. Helena Island off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Innovative with its use of Gullah dialogue and interwoven storylines among the predominantly female cast. Uh, the film focuses on ancestral and matriarchal storylines, as well as the history of former slaves who settled on the island and formed an independent community there. Mm-hmm. Um, it also explores migration of Black Americans around the Civil War and the transformation of tradition and culture. Mm-hmm. It feels it feels so personal, but personal in this like universal sense of the Black experience. Like it felt like a story rooted in history and emotion from many voices becoming one. It feels like a piece of you. And maybe, maybe because of the, the, my connection to the diaspora, it felt like me too. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about the, the process of research and bringing these histories together mm-hmm. uh, so that we can kind of all relate to them, even though it at the same time felt very much like a foreign film? Okay, well, thank God for the WPA, you know, the research and oral histories done in the 1930s, FDR, uh, put mm-hmm. together the work projects, arts group and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was able to uh, get firsthand primary, go to primary sources of research. Everything within Daughters of the Dust is based upon actual events and issues mm-hmm. and folklore and and things told to me and things misunderstood and and so i'm just really weaving historical events and issues into a dramatic story Mm -hmm. uh but a dramatic story that's told in the way that african west african griot would tell the story right so it kind of rolls out in a different structure Right. That's, that's a non-Western, turns out to be a non-Western structure. Yeah. And people yeah. are going like, what the heck? Yeah. yeah. It really felt like a meditation on culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and womanhood and, and Black womanhood in a way that, you know, we had never seen it. I remember being at my cousin's house and watching it for the first time and being enthralled by like your sense of, of courage you know, to not subtitle it and, and not to have a translation and not an ex- explanation. Well, that, all of that comes from my love of foreign films and mm-hmm. even American films that are, you know, with like a heavy, heavy Irish-American right. accent or Italian-American accent. And, you, you know, like Miller's Crossing or something. Right. And you don't get it at first, but then you just stick with it. Mm-hmm. And then soon your ear, you relax yeah, and start yeah. understanding. And it's just like, well, why can't we have that too? The Gullahichi accent is not a Southern accent. And why do we have to have a Southern accent to, you know, we're branded with so many things, you know, Hollywood brands us and says, you know, this is what black people do. This is how they tie the scarf on their head. (laughs) This is how they do, you know, everything is based upon, you know, going from the the South. This is what the South looks like. This is is the cotton. This is what it looks like. And cotton doesn't look like anything when it's time to be picked. It doesn't look like, it does in the Hollywood movies. Right. So, right. and then, and then further to that is, um, it's cotton wasn't king on the islands. Right. Was, I love that. that. You had the indigo and the indigo. It was indigo and rice, and so I used the indigo blue to stain the hands of the people who were uh, living ancestors, the, those who had survived slavery. You know, had permanently blue stained right. hands, even though in reality the over time, the blue stain would have worn off. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was the way I was showing the scars of slavery mm-hmm. rather than the whips on the back that we see True. in every movie mm-hmm. that has to do with uh, enslaved people. I showed blue hands. That was beautiful. That's another perspective that we had never witnessed before. Mm-hmm. Um, and ca- can you talk about that? Can you talk about craft and your process and how you make these decisions? Yeah. Also, you like collaborated with incredible filmmakers. I knew Ar- Arthur Jaffa obviously was a cinematographer, but I didn't know Carrie James Marshall was a production designer. Yes, yeah, Carrie James Marshall, yes. And Michael Kelly Williams, they're both very fine, fine artists. Wow. In their own right. And um, yeah. They worked on it and they built, you know, like Nana's chair. They built the figurehead. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. built our props from scratch. And so these mm-hmm. are fine art, artifacts. Where are the pieces? I'm like, I need those pieces. I know. <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's another tragedy story of putting in stuff, being put in storage and being lost. But anyway, yes. Um, and what's your process of working with them? Oh my God. Uh, Carrie had never done a film before. Right. And so he Has was- Has done one since? Uh, yeah, he did, does, he did Sankofa afterwards. Oh, uh, right. Well, Haile okay. Grima, yeah. And then he did Praise House with me again when I uh, did that magical reality with the Urban Bush women. Mm, nice. You know, so you know, we worked together too. That was times. beautiful. Yeah, and then he decided, you know, he went back to painting and the rest is history. <laughs> I had enough of this Hollywood stuff. <laughs> he doesn't want to deal with the props and Hollywood stuff anymore, but he's very supportive. You know, Carrie and his wife, Cheryl um, Lynn Bruce, they're very supportive. And Love actually, it, they right? donated so much money to the making of Travel Notes of a Geechee Girl. Ah. Yes, the story about Mary, um, Berta May Smart Grove. No. Yeah. We'll be getting into that. Okay. Um, but you, you did touch on it a little bit, but I wanted to talk about it more. You know, with the release of my film, Queen and Slim, it was so polarizing in the Black community. And I feel like because there's such a lack of Black content, mm-hmm. not enough diversity of our voices and perspectives, Black filmmakers have this really unfair burden to kind of speak for the entire community um, or receive intense criticism. And in an age when Black films were really showcasing Black masculinity at their highest with like Juice and New Jack City and Boys in the Hood. I'm curious to know how Daughters was received in the Black community. It was polarizing. <laughs> it's like that. Well, well I inherited uh, that from you. Yeah, it was. And received it and, you know, went with the blessings and all of that. But then there were people who said, well, what is she trying to do? She's trying to, she's going to shut the doors on Black filmmaking. She's going to ruin it for us. The, uh, there were people saying, why didn't you just uh, put subtitles, make it in English? There were people who told me, why didn't you do a documentary about the Gullah and the Geechee first? Or, what makes you think you could just do a film about people we've never heard of before? <laughs> so uh, there was, um, hey, we're 29 years out and now there's more acceptance. There's right. more- um, There's more voices. There are more voices mm-hmm. and um, people are not so, you know, offended about it. So. Uh, and I think that's the same thing that's going to happen with Queen and Slim. I hope so. I hope. I so. mean, it's already people. You know, people love it. And they and they love the the your your courage. Mm-hmm. Thank uh, you. 
because we see filmmakers who are not courageous, who would just want to, you know, get by, let me just get in, make the film, get the check, stack the money right. and go on. No, you were trying to say something else. You dove headfirst into <laughs> this is what I have to say. And this is exactly how I'm saying it. Yeah, that same and, uh, and oops, I'm sorry, but you know, <laughs> this is my ending. This right. is, this is what yeah. I did. Uh, and I think that's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be for everyone, you know? Like, we're not a monolithic group of people and we have diverse voices and we're not, we don't like all the same things and, and that's okay. And we should not. No. You know, because, you know, in many ways, you know, the audience has become so anesthetized mm. to uh, anything that's, that's different. You know, they just watch the same thing over and over, a remake, a remake of the of the remake. They love and it. And it's just, you know, it's, in many ways, it's, it's very primitive because it's, uh, you know, it's like being in the cave around the campfire. The same story is being told all over and over, the cautionary tale. Don't go over. Don't go into those woods. That water is dangerous. And it's very instructional, cautionary, and all of that. And in many um, regards that's 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 good it's a good thing but then also you just get into that loop right <laughs> you know boy meets girl boy yeah. loses girl boy <laughs> wins girl and and they have a little dog you know <laughs> so you know yeah absolutely yeah we need to break that loop I'm very much into that mm -hmm. um but I, and then I read this incredible times article where you were talking with a, a lot of other incredible black filmmakers of, of your time, like Darnell Martin and Maddie Rich mm, and Ernest yeah. Dickerson, uh, Theodore Witcher, where you all spoke on this incredible success you had with your first features in the 90s. Um, but then you were punished and you were blacklisted for what I interpreted as being too black, uh -huh. right? Uh, can you speak more on that struggle? Can you speak more on, on that moment in time? Um, I feel well, that I'm such a benefactor of the work that you all did and, uh -huh. and for our heroes to go unsung is, is really infuriating. Yeah. Well, in my case, I think I frightened people <laughs> because, um, you know, I would take, you know, doors were open for me and I would take meetings and afterwards, you know, we'd stand up and shake hands and people would say, well, you're not so bad. It's like, well, what? <laughs> it was like, what was I supposed to do? Right. You know, right. what was I supposed to be? Here I am, a black woman, nearly six feet tall. Mm -hmm. um, and talking about making this kind of film, that kind of film, I'm not trying to meet, make the boy meets girl film. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that terrified a lot of people, mm -hmm. not just white people, but black people as well. Producers, they will, we don't have anything to do with her. Right. Uh, and then I think I was further, you know, kind of ostracized, blacklisted with them um, doing the Rosa Parks story, uh, mm -hmm. the, to be quite honest, because, uh, it, it became a situation of, well, this is what we know of Miss uh, Mother Parks, Rosa Parks. She didn't get up because her feet hurt, and that's the film I want you to make. And it's like, we're not making that movie because oh, right. <laughs> that's not the truth, right. you know? And um, that's just, uh, that's fake news. And so, um, but certain people didn't want to hear that mm -hmm. because they, they grew up with that notion. Mm -hmm. And they were afraid that, you know, people wouldn't watch, watch it on television because they want to see the, the fake news. So, right. you know. Wow. 
we refused to do that. We we showed we we showed how she was, you know, working with the NAACP mm-hmm. on bus cases, with rape cases, and all of these things prior to the Montgomery uh, bus boycott. Prior to the time that she said, "No, I'm not standing up." Right, and it and had nothing to do with her feet. <laughs> she was Hollywood. Like, no. Okay. Yeah. They were like, we're not ready for this truth and we're not ready for this woman we can't control. Yeah, well, thank it's God I was working with uh, Angela Bassett and she was just wonderful. She said, she said, hey, let's roll with it. No, let, let's, you know, let's fight this. Let's, let's not do this. Let's tell the truth. And we did. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. Um, and your pivot was real. You know, you to have a very successful career um, in, in the art space, in the commercial space with music videos. Um, it didn't stop you and you continue to grow and work as a filmmaker um, in so many different genres, which has also been so inspiring to me to see you navigate as a true artist. Um, well, that's that's kind of the point of being a filmmaker, right? You know, people think you just want to do an episodic television right. show or you want to do a feature film. No, we're storytellers. We are exactly. you know, like we're visual shamans. We want to... Yes. Uh, make magic manifest on the screen. We want to tell our stories in in that way, in a new, unique, fresh way that's insightful, meaningful, inspiring. Uh, That's the truth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's from our own voice. That's what we want to do. And and it's it's a great thing to to do that, to make it happen. And um, so we work, I mean, I work in Super 8. Right. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I made Super 8 films, you know? Diary of an African Nun was an adaptation of an Alice Walker film that I did as my project one at UCLA. And UCLA Archives blew it up to 35 millimeter. Wow. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, it don't stop you. No. Uh, <laughs> no let's... And there's so many different formats of filmmaking that I would love to be recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this industry. I feel like that's so important uh, to encourage uh, other filmmakers to work in, in the different formats and to, to continue to tell our stories and not be discouraged if you're not getting a, you know, a feature or a television episode or whatever it is. Like, tell your story. Just do it, especially exactly. now. With, it's just, with, it's all about the work uh, more than the promotion because I have so many people, you know, I'll be at a film festival or something and people say, oh, are you still making movies? It's like, yeah, that's why I'm here. <laughs> it's like, um, yes. Um, I do. I do a lot of films for museums. Um, I, I just, I tell stories. I make movies and I teach, I teach because I'm sharing what I know, Mm. uh, you know, and, uh, and I'm sharing stories of the minefield. Yeah. And you teach them in many ways. Um, I know you have new projects like your documentary and the Angela Davis film. Uh, do you feel like real change is here and, what does this industry and specifically this organization need to do to ensure we continue to have the ability to tell our own stories and to own them? Well, the wonderful thing about the director's guild is they're always there to, uh, to put, they have your back. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I've had a, um, ever since I became DGA, I've always had a DGA associate, you know, come tap me on the shoulder on the set, on location, and say, I'm here, you know, if you need me, if there's a problem or anything. And um, and that's a good feeling to know that they're there for you. Right. 
more so than your agent or manager who's just looking for you, as I've heard, let's just bring this puppy in. It's like, yeah, but they're uh, <laughs> they're abusing me. There's retaliation going on here. So there's always the DGA to, you know, make it very clear and straighten it out and send them a letter and say, look. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they do they do fall into place when they get that call. I, I haven't used so, that yet. I don't, I don't yeah, know. I'm yeah. going to have to try um, it. And then Subway Stories. I was watching it yesterday. And that piece had me in tears. Like when Terrell Hicks started singing to her mother. Um, yeah, I, I really teared up yesterday. It was so emotional. I love how you captured the diversity of, of New York and the magic that can simultaneously happen in the city. Uh, what, what was your intention with that piece? Well, let me let me back up even further a bit. We made that quite a while ago. So uh, it was produced by Jonathan Demme mm-hmm. and Rosie Perez. Mm. So I came home one day and turned on my, you know, what do you call it? Voicemail machine. We don't even have that anymore. <laughs> and it was Rosie Perez saying, hi, are you Julie Dash? I understand you grew up in, you know, New York. I hope you saved that. I thought, I thought someone was messing with me. So <laughs> through my uh, agent and uh, at the time. And uh, it was like, oh yeah, Subway Stories. It was like, yeah, I'd love to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I went to New York and apparently they had they had a contest, uh, HBO, uh, mm-hmm. where you could send in your amazing stories that happened that you had either happened to you or that you witnessed in the New York City subway. Oh, wow. And, and whoever, and, and, and the winners, those who who've had their stories chosen to be produced, mm-hmm. they would get a year supply of free subway tokens. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved it because it's like I love the absurd. <laughs> it was like a free subway tokens. Well, you take your story and give me a dollar twenty-five. <laughs> yeah, and so um, there was a story. Um, Everyone thought I was going to choose the story of uh, kind of like with the unborn child from Daughters of the Dust. Someone had, had seen a spirit in the, um, mm-hmm. in the, in the tunnels. But I chose one that, um, that moved me the most, mm-hmm. you know, having grown up in New York City. And that was the one with the cantor mm-hmm. uh, singing and his song melding with the uh, jazz um, uh, performer, mm-hmm. the saxophone player. Mm-hmm. Kenny Garrett. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I added, I wanted to add one more thing. I like to add work in threes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I added uh, a young lady who is on her way to visit her dying mother mm-hmm. and um, her cell phone's not working. And it's like one of the last remaining telephone gadgets Mm-hmm. in the subway and she's mm-hmm. calling her mother to say I'll be there in a minute and you, we all know from New York how you know you can be in the subway and all of a sudden like that train is canceled right <laughs> you know and and the train is late mm-hmm. and so she just has so she starts singing to her mother and of course you know the three rowdy girls are, are on the other side of the track that was me and my friends they're coming from high school, you know, like, like, come on, like, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with her? You know, <laughs> so, and 
you know, subway culture and subway life, but those from New York, they will, they will recognize all of the three characters and, and including the young ladies who were like popping there, young and commenting and doing the turkey neck and all that. So that's how that, that story kind of came about. And, um, and it was Rosie Perez who said, why don't you use my girl, Terrell Hicks? She has a beautiful voice, Gorgeous. which she does. Mm-hmm. And we decided to, I chose a song that I knew would, you know, like really touch the heartstrings mm-hmm. of Black women. And mm-hmm. that is Trouble in the World because it comes from um, the imitation of life mm-hmm. that Mahalia Jackson is singing during that movie. And everyone I know has watched that film over and over, even though they, right. they hate it, but right. at the same time, which has parallel to illusions. Yeah. <laughs> back together. They hate it. But at the same time, this woman, this uh, young woman is so, you know, mm-hmm. evil against her mother because her mother is black and she's light skinned. Mm-hmm. And then when the mother dies, you know, she's running behind the casket yelling, that's my mother. Can't help feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I knew, I said, that's the song that will hit people, you know, mm-hmm. that really touch them. It did. But they don't want to be touched. So here's the amazing story behind that. So we were in, you know, for safety reasons, mm-hmm. we were in a lockdown station where no trains were allowed to come through because actually one of our last shots was on the tracks. Got you. Oh, that's when you could still shoot in New York. Well, maybe this is why you can't shoot. And, we, and we had, uh, and because I was a female director, they said, okay, they'll have a, a female um radio operator in charge of the trains with us at all times. It was like, okay. yes. Mm-hmm. So of course, gender issues raise their ugly, dangerous right. heads. She's on the radio saying, stop all trains. No trains coming through Church Street. And guess what? A train blew past. Mm-hmm. They went right, like- right during the take oh, while Terrell was singing live. Not not playback. She was singing live. Wow. And uh, and everybody was going like this to me. Let's cut it. Let's cut it. Let's cut it. And and the mix, the sound mixer was going like, oh my god, oh my god. This, and he's looking at me, waiting for me to cut it. I didn't cut it. Wow. And they were saying it will never work because the train, the roar of the train, will it's you know like yeah. is married to her. Mm-hmm voice and right. so of course we did other takes where there was no train coming through that was it. but that was the one we chose to use because it was just wonderful but yeah. on the other oh, hand yeah. we could have been killed by that train because <laughs> the uh the conductor the person driving the train would not listen to the woman on the walkie-talkie his superior he blew that train through because he knew that was a station that was shut down so he figured he get, he was not going to stop the train, but he blew through. Wow. So maybe so, that's the reason we can't shoot on the subway anymore. And we were like, what the? <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. We got that take because the emotion is, is just there. I know. Yeah, her, her voice just comes, rises above, and it's just like everybody was like frozen, like, oh, because more everyone, more than the sound person, they were thinking of, are we getting in the tracks now? <laughs> it's crazy and then I was like, no, that. we're not getting in the tracks because right. uh, no one's listening. No. You know, they're... You know, so that's the Subway Stories 
Yeah, story, I had never seen it. And then I was, you know, doing my research and I'm watching it, like, and I'm coming back to it. And then it just pulled me in and I was, suddenly was crying. And I was like, wait, how did this happen? <laughs> and it's just the power of your storytelling. And the power you know, of your voice. Yeah. So many parallels. Like, you always have the sense of tradition and history, like, laced within every frame. And yeah, the layering of things to, and then, um, Gender issues came up actually again at the very end when um, with the scarf. What happened Chloe? there? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like how many women were on the production, the team, um, <laughs> the script continuity, Terrell, myself, <laughs> and the woman with the walkie-talkie. Wow. And the uh, rest of the guys, you know, Ken Kelch was wonderful and my AD was wonderful, but they were all like, do we really need a scarf flowing? The, the scarf. It did, I, I mean, that's when yeah, it, that's like, the whole point. like it doesn't. It didn't make sense to them. Right. It, I mean, it's like you know, it's a scarf. Right. Let's we have no idea. We almost got killed today. Let's just. Right. <laughs> but we did it. They did it, and uh, and uh, that was my ending of the scarf flowing. Um, yeah. That's beautiful. It was almost like a whiff of her perfume mm-hmm. flowing in the air. Mm-hmm. And how she stays even when she's gone. And exactly. I saw so many parallels between all of your work in that moment. It's like her singing that gospel. Mm-hmm. Her mother felt like the, the monologue of Nana Pazant. Oh. Her monologue to her children. She wasn't literally singing, but you know, with the Bible in her hand, there's just all these like very distinct Julie Dashness <laughs> about all of your work and, and I live for it um, and obviously you probably don't see any of these things happening but the multi-generational historical uh, sense of emotion and, and history that's just you know running through everything you do uh, is that enchant- is intentional or is just something you just channel it and, and let it flow just channel it and let it flow and stay true to um, my mission statement. And I see so many uh, young filmmakers like yourself who are doing bold, courageous things. And that just makes me sit up and say, oh yeah, I got a breath of fresh air. You know, I thought I was knocked out. But if you sit up and see, you know, this is Queen and Slim, man. Hey, hey, yeah. Well, it's because of you, you know. You know like, I'm, I'm back. I'm back. I can breathe again. You know, like the muzzle has been taken off. And we need you. Uh, you know, check breaking the chains. That that's right. We have that. You know. Yes. And unapologetic. Unapologetic. You know. As you were able to do so, you know, so long ago, and you really taught us. You taught us the way, and we're able to do that because of you. You created that that space for Black feminism in cinema that didn't exist. You know, when you talk about Toni Morrison, both Lena and I talk about that all the time. These are the people who influenced us and mm-hmm. allow us to have this voice and, and you are, are one of them. Um, well, I, I was influenced by um, some great filmmakers too. I was influenced by Kathleen Collins. She passed mm-hmm. away a while back, but she did, did a number of films like uh, Losing Ground and mm-hmm. the Cruz Brothers and Mrs. Malloy mm-hmm. and, uh, so I kind of came up under her knowing that she had, uh, had done these features before me. Right. And they were just like, um, she was so, t- I mean, she was educated at the Sorbonne and everything. And she was just a young black woman with a mm-hmm. baby editing mm-hmm. her films. And it was like, 
it was amazing to have known her and to have wow. shared space with her at Chamber yeah. Productions with St. Yeah. Clair Vaughan and the Chamber Brothers uh, back in the late 70s, yeah. Wow, incredible. Yeah. Okay, I think I, I need to open it up because... <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm all, uh, there's just one question so far. Uh, how, they want to know how they can see your short films. Um, I saw Illusions on your YouTube channel, um, but they wanted to know about Illusions and Diary of the African Nun I actually have not been able to see. Okay, uh, that's at the UCLA archives. Mm -hmm. They have four women, Illusions, oh, wow. and Diary of an African Nun. Uh, women make movies. Deborah Zimmerman's Women Make Movies. Who have, they've been so supportive all for you know since wow. Some I think it's going on almost thirty years. Mm -hmm. uh, they have uh, illusions and uh, four women. And then there's Third World Cinema. They distribute illusions and four women as well. So um, private distribution. Women's through Women's and Third World um, agencies. I don't know. Uh, that's where you could see them. And they mostly play now in schools and museums and what have you. Beautiful. Curios, you know, <laughs> Jurassic <laughs> films from Julie Tash. <laughs> There's another question uh, where they want to know, tell us about your students, the next generation. What stories are they moved to tell? Oh, my goodness. Um, I have one student, Chuck, I call her Chuck Nunso Durek, <laughs> who, uh, I was teaching when I was at Howard, teaching at Howard University, wow. and she has a, a, a beautiful Nigerian short called Bride Price. Mm. Yes, uh, that takes place in uh, a little Nigerian shop in in, in D.C. and it's it's, wow. it's really wonderful, you know, oh, past, present, future, uh, all surrounded by the products, the spices they have in the store, and it's just really wonderful. So. Um, so uh, my students are uh, at Spelman, are documentary film students. Oh, nice. And they have a whole, it's a whole, it's two generations away from me. And they have, they have a different voice. <laughs> and, and, but that voice is very powerful and very good. And, uh, you know, they're interested in, you know, uh, green spaces. They're interested in foods and wellness and, and, and all. And so, those are my students there. <laughs> so, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. Uh, when the crew didn't want to shoot the scarf shot for Subway Stories, how'd you get them to ultimately do it? It's on That's the shot list. <laughs> it's on the shot list. That was one thing. I never <laughs> raised my voice, but I, I'm very persistent. It's just like, it's on the shot list and we're going to shoot. <laughs> I have one day to do all of this. And here we go. Do it all in one Let's day? Set it up, huh? That was a one day shoot? Yeah. <gasps> Oh my God. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Let's um, roll. <laughs> and they, these, this New York crew was ready. Well, they were already starting to pack up, <laughs> pack up their belongings. And after 5 15, it was like, no, no, no. Yeah, we I don't need sound without sound. MOS. Okay. <laughs> line it up. You know, this, okay, this is Let's do it. We're doing it. We're not leaving. I'm not leaving. Wow. Uh, another member wants to know, what is your fantasy project? 
Oh, my fantasy project or my passion project. I have, I have a stack of things that I've written. The one that I'm really, really pushing now, it's called Eleanor Roosevelt's Battalion. It's a limited series about the 850 African-American women who served overseas during World War II. Wow. I have been pitching this uh, with Sandra Evers Manley for uh, who we optioned the book, One Woman's Army, A Black Whack Remembers uh, the War. Uh, we've been pitching for like something like nine years to every studio, many major, however. And so uh, recently there's been some movement on it because there was an article in the New York Times about uh, the Black Whacks who refused to stand down, you know, under white oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wonderful article with, uh, with moving images and everything. But this is a, uh, that's my passion project to tell the story of these Black Charity Adams who was, uh, who became a, a major in the army at age 24. Wow. And she was over the- They were actually in battle. Huh? She was Black. They yeah. were in battle. Mm-hmm. They right. weren't in battle. They were the postal battalion. Okay. They didn't fight. You know. But they weren't nurses. But they had, they had fights that went on. And, you know, and some of them uh, lost their lives over wow. in France. Yes. They mm-hmm. were in England, in Birmingham, England, and in Rouen, France. Wow. Well, I, I really look forward to you telling that story. That's so that is it's a very powerful ensemble cast of characters very much like um uh band of brothers or the pacific only it's african-american women wow who were there you know and most of the time when i pitch it people will say oh i've never heard of them i'm gonna have to check on that it's like here's the pictures bam 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 (laughs) here's the pictures of them on the ship being shipped overseas on the convoy ship you know just like you know they have the hop uh uh, what's his name? Tom Hanks, Greyhound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were in one of those convoy ships. Wow. Okay, they were there. They were there at Pearl Harbor too. One, it starts off on December seventh, nineteen forty-one. What were these each of these women doing when Pearl Harbor was attacked? One of them was a maid on the Pearl Peninsula uh, to a, a admiral and his family, so she witnessed firsthand the attack on Pearl Harbor. Wow. You have to tell that story. I have to tell that story. And the wonderful thing about it is I want, it's a limited series and I want to have, I'm following uh, the Queen Sugar, Ava DuVernay's model. I want a different woman to direct each episode. I love it. Yes. Well, I'm down for that one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll hold you to it. Yeah. Um, another member wants to know how important were critics initially in your path to success? I remember how much uh, Roger Ebert, I love Daughters of the Dust. Um, it was wonderful to hear wonderful things from Roger Ebert and from, um, oh God, um, I'm blanking on her name now. There were these women critics who were firm supporters mm-hmm. um, of the film, um, and that felt good. Uh, I usually don't uh, react too much to critical reviews because you have to, it all depends on, you have to consider the source. Right. And usually the source is like, they have their own filters. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just killing me that I'm forgetting her name. Um, uh, 
But uh, usually back then, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, they were extremely, extremely harsh on women filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes some, uh, some of the early Black female critics would jump in and try to tear you apart too, like with Love Song that I did for him. They said, oh, what is this, the interracial story? What is this? This is, she made daughters of, what is she doing now? Uh, it's like- I get it. Yeah, well, being a critic is a, a profession and an art form in itself. And so we have to understand that they have to play with words. They have to uh, not only review, but they, they just look for chinks and, in the in the armor and the link and it's like whatever just read it and take it with a grain of salt thank you no thank you i'll take this part and i won't take that part i i do understand that you're trying to what you're trying to do mm-hmm. you have a job to do too mm-hmm. whose point of view means most the most to you um uh, people i meet um people like you <laughs> uh people who who tell me that they're inspired by something I did or said or something and made them, gave them the courage to, uh, to make the film that they wanted to make that, that is the bomb and dealer. That's the cure all. Mm -hmm. No, I find it's really hard to navigate, especially now with Twitter and social media and the critics and, and then your friends and artists, like, you know, who to listen to or not listen to and, and how to take criticism um, and use it right. know, to improve and to grow, but also right. like to let the voices like, you know, create this fear. Well, let me tell you something. Um, there's always a, a curing process or it takes time to marinate. Right. I, have, <laughs> I have critics. There were critics who, when I screamed in 1991, at mm-hmm. Sundance, mm-hmm. who had so much to say about the film in a negative way, or or you know, or whatever, <laughs> who came back twenty years and who have apologized to me? Wow! Because um, the films that they were, you know, heralding um, didn't last the test of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was something more going on they saw and uh, with my film and uh, they just wanted me to know. And I appreciate that. So there's that. <laughs> there's that. There's that. Um, um, sometimes people aren't ready for mm-hmm. what you're, you have to say. Yeah. And, and that's why I always say you have to be courageous and just say it anyway. Yeah. And, and, and filmmaking is a form of expression. And uh, okay. I feel like people forget that, you know? Yeah. And they just wanted to speak for them, you know, and to be the perfect film, how they would make it. And it's like, well, go make it. Exactly. Like, given any story, 10 different people would make 10 different films with the same subject matter. Mm -hmm. And it's it's an expression of what you're trying to say based upon who you are, where you come from, and uh, your politics and and your uh, aesthetics and... uh, and uh, it's your song, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know, just like any every when singers sing a song, they don't they they use their own arrangements usually. Right. Yeah, know? 
It's, it's so interesting how we're left to be critiqued in a way that I feel other artists aren't. Because um, right. if you're a painter or a sculptor or, you know, something like that, you wouldn't have the same opinion about my work. Yeah. <laughs> it would just allow me to have my perspective. Right. It's, uh, it's a thing of, um, it's be, filmmaking as a direct, it's a form of confession. Mm-hmm. And so you have people listening in and going like, ooh, what she said, or I don't like what, hmm, you know, like, like twirling the mustachios, let me, I can, I can jump into this, I can bite into this and really tear this, this one apart. Right. Um, it, because it's, it, you're publicly exposing your ethos, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to be prepared for that to push back, you know, like throw up your draconian shield, you know, like <laughs> a Vulcan, you know, like throw up your draconian shield. It's like, you can't hurt me, you can't hurt me. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have to be courageous. It's so true. You have to be courageous. Another member yeah. wants to know uh, what were the influences for Daughters of the Dust? What were the influences for the poetry, the imagery, the wardrobe? The wardrobe, the attention to detail was beyond. Okay. Uh, that's a long conversation. Great question. Um, the wardrobe was based upon photographs that I saw at the Penn Center from the time period. Mm. In fact, the whole picnic on the beach mm-hmm. was inspired by the photographs because I had the story taking place under a big tree. And then, originally, and then I saw these photographs and it's like, oh my God, they had on these white Gibson girl um, dresses mm-hmm. and they were, uh, and they had the hats, but we couldn't afford the hats. So we didn't have, <laughs> so there was more to it. Uh, the attention to detail was, uh, has always been important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the dresses were built like Yo Mary's dress was hand sewn in Savannah by <laughs> virgins. No, I'm just kidding. It was, <laughs> but uh, some of the dresses that were built and some of them were were cobbled together from existing costumes and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, Nana's dress was indigo because, you know, visual rhetoric. She wanted to stay, the, she wanted things to stay the way they were in the past. And so she's the indigo blue color. Yeah. And then we had the blue um, uh, bow mm-hmm. on the uh, unborn child. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the fun part when you start. That's the visual rhetoric. That's the yeah. subtext. Yeah. That's the telling the story uh, using the grammar. Mm-hmm. Of, of a film in a in your own way and that's the fun beautiful. part the attention to detail what about other influences for the poetry the, the writing um, um the, the the writing and the structure came from reading and, and reading about african west african griots Mm. who would come to uh, a family's uh, big ceremonies, either wedding, funeral, birthing ceremony. And they would sit for days telling the family's history, just like unfurling, unfurling. And, and you know, Yusuf Ndur comes a singer. It's, it comes from a family of African griots. And they, some of them would sing it. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they trained for their entire lives to be the these griots who would sing these songs. And so... 
that's how I decided the structure would be. It would just be, you know, continually unfurling, unfurling. And I was not going to use the, uh, the, the Greco-Roman uh, story structure that we're also used to in, West, in the Western world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the, um, the relationship between Yellow Mary and Trula? Okay. <laughs> that's so it sounds like it was a lesbian relationship and speaking on, uh, you know, homosexuality at that time and, and mm-hmm. Black women and the community. Um, uh-huh. Was that the intention? That was the intention um, uh, because when, in reading about women who traveled, here I have a character, Yellow Mary, coming from, uh, you know, the South New Orleans, traveling all the way to the family's home in the islands and then planning to go on to Nova Scotia, which is like, ding, a little hint. That was a lo- Nova Scotia was the last stop on the Underground Railroad. Mm. You know, so that's where uh, her, um, Trula's family was from, Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. So... Um, mm. Women didn't travel alone, and right. number one. And number two, uh, they were both uh, women of independent means, meaning they were sex workers. Right. <laughs> uh, often, from my reading of the sex workers during that time, they, were, they had lesbian uh, relationships because mm-hmm. they were kind of like, men, the men thing was just to make money. Right. They, were right. them, and they just wanted to be home alone with themselves. Right. So it was like, let's go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people didn't like it. Um, mm-hmm. They said, why are you bringing that up? It's just like, well, I didn't invent this storyline. The right. storyline <laughs> came to me. It came to me. Doing right. my research and, and what's wrong talking about it. But then that added s- extra drama to, uh, you know, the Hagar character, like, you know, looking at Yellow Mary and right. talking about all that yellow wasted, you know, <laughs> because we know as Black people that if you high yellow, you're supposed to be like high cotton. And so, <laughs> and then he, she's going like, what the hell? You, you know, waste all this yellowness? <laughs> you know, so. I love that line. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Incredible. Uh, what are some of the films that have inspired you and why? Oh my goodness. I have been inspired, like mostly, like I said, Kathleen Collins. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the past or now? I think both. I'm going to get into big trouble. I'm going to leave it in the past. Okay, Kathleen Collins, Losing Ground, the Cruz Brothers, Mr. Malloy, it's the work of Sarah Gomez, Sarah Molidor, Uzan Palsy, um, Sugarcane Alley. Mm-hmm. Incredible. All of her work. She did Simeon. She did so much work. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Tarkovsky's the Russian um, director, his work, you know, Stalker, uh, the work of uh, Ozu, uh, Kurosawa, Sajid Ray. I loved his Apu trilogy. I wow. saw that, you know, as a high school student sitting in, you know, uh, the Studio Museum of Harlem. And I'm watching the Apu trilogy and I'm going, well, they remind me of the people I'm, I live growing up with in Queensbridge. <laughs> you know, it's just like right. something very familiar about the daughters and they're making the bread and what it's like. There's something very familiar, you know, right, about and, uh, them. And so I, I love that work. Wow. Those films were like a way to travel. 
I feel like. Exactly. I have a sense of these other cultures and I see the influence in, in all of your work. And mm -hmm. I mean, making foreign films, American foreign films is really interesting. And There's I feel like so many foreign films to be made out of our culture because our yeah. culture has been seen through the eyes of someone mm -hmm. who usually does not come from the culture. Right. And mm -hmm. they've said, you know, they've laid a predicate for this is the way things are. This is, this is what we always have a harmonica. You know, <laughs> I was determined not to have any harmonica music. Oh. I mean, even the fact that you didn't use cotton, you know? Yeah. No cotton, no harmonica music, no chorus singing in the church. You know, it's like, for God's sake. So I did do a film, um, Funny Valentine's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that there was uh, a scene with written with the choir. So I have the choir ending. Boom. <laughs> because I, I I love the choir. I grew up in the Baptist church, but give me a break. Every time there's a, a film about African-American, did the choir thing. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, <laughs> it's like enough. Yeah. You know, enough with the same old, same old. We, there's so many other stories. What about the usher board in the back arguing? What about right. the usher board in the back who really run the church, right. not just the black preacher? Mm -hmm. I want to see that. And so we should yeah. have funny balance. And all the different forms of religion that exist in our community. You know, exactly. that's not, borders. It's like you have Arabic, you have Muslim, you have Yoruba and, and Igbo uh, traditions. And it, it, and it's, we're surrounded by it. And I was surrounded by it growing up in Queensbridge. I told you I grew up in Queensbridge Projects. Mm -hmm. And so I had uh, the Bilal Muhammad character in uh, Daughters of the Dust. Yeah. And when I was in France, I was accused by a critic of pandering to public, <laughs> the, what's, in the, what's happening in the public now with the Muslim community wow. by inserting this character into my movie. And it was just like, no, but there are, there were, and there were many yeah. uh, people of the Muslim faith in, in, the, in the South, mm -hmm. just as they were in, in Queensbridge, right. where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Because we can wake up hearing the morning prayer. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what it meant. Never questioned it. It just was. Mm -hmm. But when you put it in a film, then you have people saying, well, why are you doing that? I've never seen another film uh, by a man, <laughs> directed by a man that had that in it. So therefore, you must be making it up, trying to pander to uh, uh, what's in the news, what's in the headlines. And so... We face a lot of that, and it's just like, it's a lot of um, disturbed craziness. But uh, you're like, I panted to the truth. Yeah, mm -hmm. this, this is my but, truth. Um, this is what I know. You you spoke about Queensbridge and New York a bit, but what was your family life growing up? Like, what were your parents involved in? What was their occupation? Okay, um, I knew my my parents were very different from the <laughs> other people, especially my father with his Geechee accent, and people would right. say, well, "Where did he come from?" Uh, is, <laughs> he migrate from the south, yeah. huh? Did he migrate from the south? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. from the uh, from Charleston and okay. the islands there. And same thing with my mother; they both came from South Carolina. Well, they both were from there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They both came from South Carolina during World War II. Everybody, you know, moved up. Um, our, our cuisine was different. Mm. I love the recipes you have in the beginning of the book. I'm going to hit those up. Everything is about the rice. Yeah. <laughs> we had rice three times a day. We mm. rarely ate potatoes. Wow. And so people would come and say, you, 
you know, people come to the house and visit and say, you have having rice again. And we go like, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to fit in, mm. my sister and I, uh, but we knew we were very different. We have, we have rice three times a day, usually fish for breakfast where everybody else was eating cold cereal. Mm. So it's a lie. Mm. I tell people, oh, yeah, what do you eat? Uh, Captain Crunch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, we didn't have cold cereal like that. Right. We usually had fish roe and grits. Yeah. Or some kind. And our fish wasn't fried. Our fish was usually baked or broiled. Mm. And that was, that was our lives. We ate a lot right. of shrimp, crab, fish, mm. whatever. Mm. Incredible. And did your parents put you onto film at all? Had they introduced no. you? Uh, <laughs> When uh, my mother used to tell people, oh, she's doing some kind of cinema workshop or something. <laughs> it's like, and they would, and people would look at me like, oh, there she goes again, you know, because I used to play basketball, you know, I was different. So did I. Then I'm doing some kind of cinema workshop. Uh, <laughs> no, they, um, they were supportive. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they knew that I was, you know, not hanging out <laughs> I was at the workshop I was at the studio museum of Harlem and all of that was good yeah and my mother used to give me money to take a gypsy cab over to the studio museum of Harlem which was wow. great you know yeah she used to bought it that way what what has been their reactions to your films well both of my parents are deceased now my father passed before that film was done mm-hmm. and my mother um my mother was very uh, proud, but she was more proud <laughs> to to find out that Siskel and Evit gave it two thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> and she was very proud to know that uh, the Africans on 125th Street was selling bootleg copies. Wow. <laughs> that That's made exactly it what I said. We made it. It was when a I went, to, yeah. I went to Slauson and they were bootlegging my movie on the on the sidewalk and I was like, I made it. You made it, yeah. And people don't understand that she was like, she was telling her friends, yeah, they're selling it down on yeah, That's a good feeling. You know, bootleg copies, you know, no title cover, just a plain, plain <laughs> white rapping. <laughs> so I knew then that I had, had made it. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And how have you balanced motherhood and your career with filmmaking? Has that inspired Uh, you? That's a question you you should ask my my daughter. (laughs) Um, But I do have, um, it was rough. Mm -hmm. But I have one kind of funny, tragic story is that my my daughter at the time, she was in the brownies. Mm -hmm. My daughter was thrown out of the brownies because I didn't have enough time to participate. Oh, no. (laughs) She was literally... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thrown out of the brown because I was I was doing a lot of music videos at the time and you know when was she when was she born she was born in 84 okay yeah, yeah. okay so before Daughters of the Dust uh no um yes she was it was before Daughters of the Dust wow <laughs> <laughs> well yeah because you know actually we shot it in 89 okay so she was very was she on set with you? No, I okay. never let her. I never maybe she she's old enough now to be on set. <laughs> but no, 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 never. It's too dangerous, you know. Yeah. She stayed with her grandparents. Wow, so interesting. Um, and then talk to me about travel notes of a Geechee girl. 
Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful story about Bertame Smart Grosvenor, who uh, is a, was a culinary anthropologist. She was also, I met her when she agreed to be the woman wearing the hat in Daughters of the Dust. Oh, I Verna Mays uh, has had an amazing life and career. Mm-hmm. She, um, she was a chef, an anthropologist, uh, raconteur, actor, radio personality for many, many years on NPR. Mm. And it wasn't until I started doing a documentary about her with your producer cousin, Rachel Tsunami Baton, that I found out that she was also a beatnik in the 1950s. Wow. I never, I, I never imagined a black beatnik. Of course, no. we knew of uh, Mary Baraka when he was Leroy, Leroy Jones and he was yeah. Road Dutchman and he was, you know, with the beat generation. But I never saw any images of black beatniks. And and when I found out that she was not only in and of the beat generation and the beat literary movement, but she moved to Paris in 1958 and lived at the Beat Hotel at the same time as that Allen Ginsberg was there and William Burroughs was there as well. Wow. It was in the Beat Hotel. And it was like, that was it. We have to do this movie yeah. <laughs> because I've seen documentaries about the Beat Hotel and that like she'll be in the distance in a picture. What? And the and what they mention then is the interracial sex. Mm. And it's like, wait a minute, that's Verna May. And her <laughs> grandchildren are watching this movie about the Beat Hotel. And you know, every time they show her face, they talk about exotic international sex. It's like, come on. Wow. Come yeah, on. you get to rewrite her story. Yeah, and then you're also working on the Angela Davis project. Yes, it's a Lionsgate production that uh, is being written by Brian Tucker, mm-hmm. and uh, we are, I guess, we'll go up once the pandemic is over. <laughs> we'll be ready to shoot. Hopefully, hopefully, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you talk to me about because I would like some advice on development and working on a script that you're not necessarily writing, because I know you mostly write your scripts. So how you work with a, a writer, how do you develop something, how do you know when it's done? Um, it's never done. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, and you know that from shooting. It's never yes, done. Yes, I You'll know. three in the morning on the set, tweaking dialogue. Right, mm-hmm. right. How many iterations uh, have you gone through with, with uh, Angela? Angela? Mm-hmm. And is she involved in the project? Am I, is she, oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, she gave it her blessing. And uh, I came on to the project when it was already in progress. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I called for a new screenplay because, mm-hmm. you know, this mm-hmm. is Angela Davis. <laughs> yeah, you have to do that right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think we were at the sixth iteration mm-hmm. of a screenplay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It takes a while. Uh, there's a there's a learning curve, uh, not just with the writer, but also with the studio executives. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people kind of like, you know, with Black historical dramas, just kind of like with the uh, Rosa Parks story, they didn't really know Angela Davis. Right. They knew tall woman, educated, sophisticated, big Afro, 
Marin County shootout. She's wanted by the FBI on the 10 most wanted list. Big time capture sequence. Mm -hmm. That's what they knew. They saw the action film. Yeah. They didn't see where did that come from? Mm -hmm. It came from her growing up, you know, in in Birmingham, Alabama in the 1950s. They came from, uh, she lived on Dynamite Hill, bombs going off all around her in the Black community by the KKK. They were under attack. Mm -hmm. And so when I went in there, I pitched to them Aleppo. Angela Davis grew up in Aleppo. Yeah. And everybody was going like, well, I said, yeah, Aleppo, that dynamite hill. That makes sense. They say she was one of those kids sitting on the rubble. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, but that was very disturbing to some people. After At first they said fine, but then they said, <laughs> so we're still working it out. We're still misogyning it. And we have some very great, we have the producers, Mike Pasternak and Sidra Smith and, um, Incredible. Have you cast uh, it yet? No, not yet. Not yet. We're not there yet. Got you. Another member wanted to know how you felt about Netflix, but I guess they're also meaning the streamers and kind of this new wave of, of consuming content. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I love the fact that you can binge watch season one and season yes. If you can stay awake. You can go, can, you know, you go in there like this. Can I stay awake for season two? It's like, yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Love it. Money heist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think our questions have kind of petered off now. That was everything. Let me make sure I have it all. So I'm looking forward of doing to doing Eleanor Roosevelt's Battalion, a kind of a Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, what have you. That's what I want, and that's what we need. That's what we deserve. We've been waiting more than 70 years for the uh, African-American woman's point of view of World War II. Yeah. How we relate to it, how we suffered through it, how we uh, made the best of it, um, uh, and who we were over there, overseas. Why can't we see that? Well, it's like the... When I went to the National Archives uh, years ago, some of the pictures that I got of the women had been censored. Mm -hmm. They were censored from the press. They were censored from history because it was the Dixiecrats at the time during the 1940s. They didn't want to know about Black women serving overseas. Mm -hmm. And that's how I came up with the title. Mm -hmm. Because it was Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod Bethune who put together this battalion and said, yes, they will go over there and redirect the mail for all of the soldiers who were stationed overseas. And the War Department, you know, like just use a derogatory name to, they kept referring to them as Eleanor Roosevelt's battalion. Like, oh, that that group over there, like, we won't talk about them, but yeah, Eleanor. So it's like, yeah, we take the name and celebrate it. Just like with Gullah Geechee, being a Geechee or Gullah used to be a, a I saw that you had huh? Yeah, why was it derogatory? Because it was just well, a- because the the Gullah Geechee people, who mm-hmm. uh, after the Civil War, when uh, Union soldiers went down there, they found a group of people who were so African in their demeanor and dress mm-hmm. and language and religion and everything. They were like, oh, these Geechees. Um, <laughs> So, you know, the human nature, people always create this pecking order, this, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, 
Yeah, it's one thing to be African American, but it's a whole nother thing to be a Geechee. <laughs> I was like, whoa. So we took the name and said, no, we're going to celebrate it. So that's the name of my company, too, Geechee LLC. Oh, amazing. Yeah, let's go back often. Huh? Do you, are you able to visit often? Yeah, I go down. Well, not now. <laughs> I have relatives who still live there. So, you know, I usually spend summers there. What was their reaction to today? No. What was their reaction to Daughters of the Dust? Ooh. Uh, my grandmother's reaction was like, because of the, at first, uh, you know, the whole Geechee thing. Right. Uh, but then she came around because we were told not to tell people we were Geechee. Oh, wow. You could be Geechee and be proud Geechee. Right. Don't tell anyone on the outside you're Geechee. How are you eating that Captain Crunch? Exactly. Just, <laughs> you know, yeah. And then I think we have time for one more. Uh, what is this? Um, they definitely want your World War II movie. And I want to, I want to do, yeah. Uh, they said, thank you for taking the time with us personally. They all bow to you and thank you. Thank you. Um, but I want to ask one more question just about being a woman and being Black in our industry. I know it's not okay. a small question, um, but I think it's worth touching on. Mm-hmm. Um, what your experience has been, um, how you feel like that's changing, and the need for change? Okay. Very good question. I think that when I started out, I was very much under the radar. Mm-hmm. After I, you know, came out at UCLA and all of this, and I'm going around to the labs and checking on the progress of four women, everybody at the lab wanted to meet me because I had so many cuts in my film, physical cuts. They said, no, man, we ain't running this through our machine. You're not going <laughs> to cause us a shutdown because it's going to break. So we had to, you know, make a negative right away. They said, why would you cut your film so much? I said, because I, that's how you do quick cuts. It was, this was analog filmmaking and analog. Real or real? Yeah. And so this is for real, for real. So, uh, so I got to speak to a lot of the people in, in uh, men, mostly white men and, you know, smoking in the lab where they could blow up smoking in the background. And they were they were curious about me because I wanted to sit with them as they color corrected and they were going like, right. oh, so, and I, but so I was under the radar mm-hmm. and I was a curiosity. Mm-hmm. And so I got by that way. But um, and then there was the 90s mm-hmm. where you had black filmmakers and then I was like the one of the only female black filmmakers. There was Leslie Harris there too. And then later uh, came, um, um, what's that? She did Cadillac Records, Donnell Martin. Exactly. Wonderful, wonderful filmmaker. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of like out there alone and Mm -hmm. the gender issue came up. This was before Gina Prince Blythewood and and everything. The gender issues came up Mm -hmm. and it's just like, well, it seemed like Hollywood was more open to black male filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And like when they did the cover, the New York Times, uh, Hollywood's Gotta Have Them. Mm-hmm. All black men. Yeah, all black men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that went on for a while. Um, so things have changed. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because, you know, we, we just mentioned Gina, Gina Prince Blythewood, her wonderful films, you know, 
Love and Basketball, boo. Uh, Secret Life of Bees, boo. And now, oh God. Yes. Oh God. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yes. oh God is terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, things have changed, but that doesn't mean you could become complacent and sit back. You just have to keep pushing. Yeah. You have to push yourself as a, as a, as an artist, as a female artist, as a black female artist with a unique voice that can, we can add a lot to American culture and we have, uh, but uh, they have to be courageous too, to allow us to speak our truth. That part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I completely agree. Well, yeah. I think that's all the time we have. Okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that went very quickly. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you. Can I give a shout out to Ava DuVernay too? Yes, please. Oh my God. Ava DuVernay changed the playing field for so thank many you. young filmmakers. And uh, yes. so we have to, you know. You guys are carving the path for all of us to follow. And, and we are so excited to continue your legacy and to see what you have in store for us next. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us and inspire you. us. Um, you're so important. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed our spotlight today. Yeah. <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed it too. Bye-bye. Bye. That wraps up this exclusive discussion with Julie Dash. If you'd like to hear more, check out episode 266, which features director Spike Lee discussing his filmography. Or visit our YouTube page to find discussions with David O. Russell, Leslie Linka Glatter, and Guillermo del Toro. The Director's Cut is available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 